0: Turn in your Bibles to Acts eighteen. Acts eighteen, one through seventeen this morning. Let's pray once again as we go to God's Word. Our Father, may we as your people who are set apart as as your people unto your glory be filled with love for Christ. May we be ones who sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts, that we may stand secure in him and proclaim him faithfully to those around us. And may we find Christ a precious treasure in your word here this morning, that our hearts may be lifted up and encouraged. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Acts 18, through 17. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio, the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, when he was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made an attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. This is God's word. Fear is a, a normal thing, a normal response. In some ways it's good. Fear protects us. Uh, rock climber Alex Honnold Climbs 3,000 foot cliffs without a rope, and they've looked at his brain, and the, the fear part is broken. Makes sense. <laughs> but fear can also be sin, uh, timidity, unwillingness to endure pain and suffering for the right reasons, a desire to please men rather than God. Uh, how often does God say in the scripture, Fear not? Fear not. I've reminded you over and over that Luke and Acts were histories written to give us confidence. That's what Luke 1 says. That's why they were written, to give confidence. So you may say that Luke-Acts is an apologetic, a historic apologetic, both that the truth of the gospel is reliable and that the story of the testimony of King Jesus reigning from heaven, establishing His kingdom through His word and through His people, is is for real, and that King Jesus is on His throne. It's, a, it's an apologetic. We're all familiar with the apologetic text, the famous apologetics text, First uh, Peter three fifteen, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect so in essence i think acts in some ways is an it exemplifies 1st peter 3:15 it's a, an apologetic and in some ways Because he's trying to teach Theophilus to be confident in the gospel and in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, sanctify Christ the Lord as Lord in your hearts, O Theophilus. And the same to us by the book of Acts. Over and over again, every story in Acts is an exposition of King Jesus on his throne. Advancing his kingdom through the spread of the gospel and the establishment of the church. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. The lordship of Jesus puts fear in its proper text. If we expand out on the the text from 1 Peter 3, we see this uh, context is actually has to do with fear. From beginning in verse 13, But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. So it's contrasted against the fear of man. Always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So we get a picture here in this text of Christ the Lord. Who is Christ the Lord and how do we sanctify him as Lord in our hearts? Uh, This passage, we find him to be, uh, this is a rare alliteration, worked out this time. Uh, a sovereign provider, protector and promise keeper. Sovereign protector, sovereign provider and some prom- uh, sovereign promise keeper. So verse, he's a sovereign provider. Verse 1 after this Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, Corinth was 53 miles to the south. You could travel by water or by land. Uh, Corinth was the largest city in, in Achaia, uh, and it was kind of the, the Las Vegas of the day, uh, licentious city. Calvin has an old proverb. He says, and the old proverb doth testify that it was sumptuous and full of riot. All men cannot go to Corinthus. <laughs> in other words, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. This surely would be an initial hesitation to go to such a place for any of us. Uh, to, to go to a foreign, overtly pagan, licentious city. And I think Paul seems fearless, almost inhuman to us, but he wasn't. That's a silly idea. Surely he had his own reservations about going to such a city. If I myself was to go to Las Vegas, I'd be looking to stay in my hotel room by myself or to try to get to Lake Mead to fish for striped bass as quickly as possible. This is one of these things that causes fear in us. I'm going to encounter resistance here. It's going to be difficult. It's going to push me beyond my comfort zone. We see this in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians that Corinth continued to be a pastoral pain point for Paul. Corinth was a difficult calling. Now, already in in God's providence, we see God's provision. Paul arrives alone without his companions yet. And in verse 2, he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Um, So we don't know at this point if uh, Priscilla and Aquila are Christians, but it seems like they may be, as they depart Corinth in just a year and a half, they follow Paul, and they actually are capable of correcting Apollos on his gospel. It seems like they have an understanding. But secondly, and more relevantly, according to uh, the historian Suetonius, Claudius, the emperor Claudius, expelled the Jews from Rome because of unrest. And this unrest was instigated by a man named Crestus, which is either a misspelling or, a, or a, another spelling, In Latin, of the word Christ. So the controversy that was stirring up the Jews in Rome was the Christian controversy. And that's why he cast them out of Rome. Uh, That was in 49 AD. And so it's possible that Priscilla and Aquila were were Christians, uh, Christian Jews who who left Rome, who left Italy. Um, And it's, it's amazing here to see Paul had not made it to Rome, and yet. Clearly, the gospel had made it to Rome, and it was making waves in Rome. Whatever the case, uh, Priscilla and Aquila had been exposed to the gospel, and they were very possibly Jewish Christians. But not only that, they were also of the same trade as Paul. He says he went to see them, and in verse three, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for them, worked with them, for they were tent makers by trade. Um, so the word tent maker here at this time in history was also synonymous with leather worker. Um, some people conjecture that that Paul was a uh, weaver of goats hair, but you can see kind of the implausibility of an itinerant preacher carrying a, a loom on his back. It'd be much easier to care, carry leather working tools. So Paul was likely a leather worker. Um, and Craig Keener says that in, in the ancient economy. People of the same trade usually lived together in the same part of town and formed trade guilds. Their trade guilds normally adopted a patron deity, and they ate sacrificial food at their regular banquets together. This cultic orientation of trade guilds would exclude practicing Jews from fellowship, making Jews delighted to find other Jews of their own trade. So already here in his, his uh, time in Corinth, Paul, uh, the Lord is providing for Paul. He's provided uh, an orchestrated uh, companionship as well as means to provide for himself and to establish a preaching outpost in the city. So this is common for Paul to do tent making labor um, in Acts 20, 34 he says, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have ministered to my own needs and those of my companions. So Paul regularly undertook uh, bivocational ministry. So we see in the initial provision of the sovereign Lord that he orchestrated blessing for Paul in Corinth. But also, Paul was, was not waiting around for God to intervene, to just drop blessings on his lap. Some kind of let go and let God philosophy. He sought out connections. He, he, he undertook his own sustenance and ministry opportunities. And by the grace of Christ, his needs were supplied. It's easy to become apathetic in situations where we feel resistance. I'm just, I'm just waiting on the Lord to provide. Or we can be kind of like the, the unemployed person. I can't find any work. Well, have you been looking for work? Have you submitted applications? We can become apathetic, especially when we're fearful about the outcome. But Paul didn't do that. He sought out uh, his, his needs as well as ministry opportunities, and the Lord blessed it. Um, sovereign provision of the Lord continues in Corinth. In verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy arrive, which is a blessing in and of itself. But it seems here in the language that Paul may have at this point been freed from at least some of his responsibility to to leatherwork, to making tents. Uh, and the reason I say that is says he was occupied with the word. And the Greek word means to hold or to constrain completely. So it seems that he was c- completely constrained with the word when they arrived. And other scriptures seem to actually kind of confirm this this idea, this interpretation that, that Paul was supplied with a monetary gift from Macedonia, probably, or from uh, Philippi. And that alleviated his burden and his need to do this bivocational ministry. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.8 Paul says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you, I was and was in need. I did not burden anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. And again, in Second Corinthians 12, 13. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? And then in Philippians 4:15." He uh, commends the Philippians. He says, And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So it seems that Paul had received a gift from Macedonia, and it, it liberated him to be occupied with the word when his friends arrived. So the provision of the Lord uh, provides Paul with the, the, the means necessary to engage in gospel ministry. Luke goes on here to describe uh, the opposition of the Jews, which by now is kind of old hat. Uh, the Jews continually do this in almost every city. In verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is not a final rejection of all Jews, but Of the Jews here in the city. Now I've done what I can here. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples to uh, shake the feet, the dust off their feet, when someone won't listen to them. This is what Paul has done in Acts 13:51. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And shaking the garments is very similar to shaking the dust from your feet. And we see an example of. The shaking your garments in Nehemiah chapter 5, uh, verse 13. Nehemiah's calling the people to um, stop oppressing the poor. And he, he, uh, they agreed to stop doing it. But this is part of the covenant ceremony here in Nehemiah 5.13. And I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So this is the sign. May, may you be shaken from your house if you do not obey. And the same thing is, here is, is basically Paul's proclaiming judgment on these people who will not listen to him about Christ being the Messiah. And he tells them sternly that he is innocent and their blood is on their own heads. We see this principle in Ezekiel 3. 18 through 21. If I say to the wicked, You shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. So if God warns, and you fail to warn, your, his blood is on your hands. He goes on, but if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. So there's that principle of that he's speaking of, that I have warned you that Jesus is the Christ. And we've seen him in Acts 17 say the judgment is coming. I've warned you now your blood is on your own head. I, I, I've done my duty toward you. He says something very similar in his uh, discussion with the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, where he says, Therefore I testify to you this day that that I am innocent of the blood of you all. This is an allusion to the Ezekiel passage. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. That's that's striking and a bit terrifying for those who preach the word, that the failure to, to preach the whole counsel of God Means blood is on my hands, on the hands of the preacher. That if he doesn't fail, if he fails to warn as God warns, blood is on his hands. Now Paul leaves, he, after he shakes out his garments, he leaves the synagogue and he goes next door. In verse 7, he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Um, so this man, he was a, a God-fearer like Cornelius, uh, like others we've encountered on the way. He, he uh, believed in the God of Judaism, but he didn't become a full, a full Jew, a full proselyte. Uh, but if he, it seems that if Paul's taking up lodging with him, that he was one of those who accepted Paul's message initially. So Paul's living with him. And then Luke, as he loves to do, draws our attention to the ironic in verse 8, that Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Um, so this this position of ruler of the synagogue is a man who is charged with the responsibility of taking care of the, the physical needs of the synagogue, as well as to organize the worship services of the synagogue um, and Paul mentions this man Crispus in 1 Corinthians 14 when he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. Uh, according to one commentator, this is, I found this interesting, that tradition holds that Crispus later served as the bishop of Chalcedon and was martyred for his faith. Uh, in the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church have, have um, canonized Crispus as a saint. Um But it's interesting here not not only Crispus, but also Luke says many Co- Corinthians heard the gospel from Paul and believed and were baptized and, and brought into the fold of God. Christ's provision extends to the salvation of men and women from the most the most corruptive cities, the stronghold of the devil's schemes. And those who should have been the most unlikely were the ones who were saved. And those who should have believed, the Jews who had been raised on the word of God did not believe. The Lord provided. Just like the the parable of the banquet. where No one showed up. The people who were supposed to show up, no one showed up. So God brought in the people from the streets. The Lord provides. So if you're encountering fear, Are you sanctifying Christ as Lord in your heart, as the sovereign provider? The Lord provided Paul with companionship, with means through opportunity to work, with means through the gifts of the church. He provided Paul with ministry and gospel impact there as he was establishing his church in Corinth in a wicked city. Uh, Somebody was telling me the other day, I think think it was Michael, uh, that the trouble for armies trying to invade Russia is supply chain problems. You can get up there, but you can't keep the the supplies flowing. The the Russians are fierce warriors, of course, but they could be defeated. But uh, if troops had constant supply of food and ammunition and clothes and equipment, they, they might have a better chance. And we're tempted to despair sometimes, particularly as we bear witness in a crooked and t- twisted generation. We, we must remember that uh, this is Jesus' fight. That he's, he's with us here in the trenches, in the fighting fields, and also that his supply chain will never break. He always wins every battle. He never fails to supply his people with provision. He sets them apart, uh, and we set him apart as Lord in our hearts. Uh, And we can be confident that he will provide for us. Secondly, we hear we see that Jesus is the sovereign protector. In verse 9, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So isn't it interesting that the word of God comes to Paul and says, Do not be afraid. I mean, again, of all the people in the Bible, Paul seems like, like a robot. Like he, he just doesn't seem to be afraid. He just kind of chugs along with an endless supply of energy marching marching into the fire and doesn't seem to have regard for his body or his emotions. But that's not the case. Paul was a human being. Certainly he was afraid when he went into these situations, when he was about to be stoned or beat with rods. Here God reassures Paul. Paul. God is his protector. God is his strength. He will watch out for him and protect him. And he tells him why. Because he has work for him to accomplish in this city. God has often told his people, fear not. And the answer, sometimes it seems almost trite to say, but it's it's the covenant promise. Why should we not be afraid? Because I will be with you. That's what he tells Paul. I will be with you. Abraham, he tells Abraham that in Genesis 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. He tells Jeremiah, and the call of Jeremiah, Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. And Joshua 1 9 Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened? And do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And of course we remember Jesus saying the same thing in Matthew 18. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. It's interesting here, and I think it's important, some red letter translations of the Bible uh, have these words in Acts 18, uh, 9-10 in red. And I think rightly so. When he says, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. that These are the words of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of Acts, again, is the lordship of Christ. And as he's ascended to the right hand of, of God and has taken his seat on the throne of the kingdom of his father, David, he reigns supreme. Therefore, in Acts, when we read the title, Lord it's usually referring referring to the second person of the Trinity It's usually speaking about Jesus so the Lord Jesus visited Paul in a vision and that's why I've been applying this text saying specifically the King Jesus is our protector, our provider, and our promise keeper. And we have this stunning example in this text of just how far the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ extends. I was talking about this with a, a pastor friend yesterday and we were, noticed that we're we're totally willing to let God be sovereign over the universe until it comes to us, until it comes to our salvation. And then we make an exclusion. God does all that He pleases, but He, he leaves salvation in our own hands. But here we have an example, a testimony of divine election. I have many in this city who are my people. Many people are already marked out as my people. It's your job to go and preach to them and see them transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved son. Many in this city are my people and I need you to preach to them. We saw this theme already in Acts 13:48 in Cyprus uh, when the Gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed so election far from removing the impetus for evangelism here jesus himself says the reason paul should not be afraid and that he should keep preaching the gospel faithfully is because there are people of jesus in this city to be saved The means of salvation is the preached word of the gospel. But so what a comfort it is to sanctify the Lord Jesus in our hearts, who is the protector of his servants. That's a powerful apologetic encouragement. That He will preserve us and protect us for His use. And it's not a guarantee of of minimal suffering, the, the, the promise of protection. Think about Paul, how much he suffered. Think about Jeremiah, who said, I'll be with you and they won't destroy you. Jeremiah was stoned to death and he endured great suffering. But that will be, we will be protected for the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the promise. And if Christ is truly sanctified as Lord in our hearts, there, there is no higher privilege that we could ask for than to live, and to die and to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. So, King Jesus is our sovereign provider. He's our protector and finally promise keeper in verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Um, so, Achaia is the name of the region where Corinth is. A proconsul is the ruler of that area. Gallio uh, was the esteemed brother of the philosopher Seneca. Seneca was uh, he he respected Gallio, he de- devoted several of his books to Gallio, and Seneca was one of Nero's tutors and Now it's interesting, little did anyone know, as Paul stands before Gallio that these two men would share the same fate because Nero turned against Seneca and killed both Seneca and Gallio um, in Rome, just as Paul was beheaded in Rome under uh, Nero. Now the Jews, they come together. They're united against Paul. And the accusation is, is one we've heard before, very similar, that's raised against him in Thessalonica. And here it sounds like they may be saying he's he's uh, preaching and telling us to praise God Contrary to the Jewish law, but I don't think that makes sense. Why would they go to Gallio to say he's breaking our, our Jewish laws? Um, so they're, they're saying that they're acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. That's the accusation. That's what they leveled against him in Thessalonica and surely here as well. And I'm reminded of Jesus' own trial where they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So the Jews were taking advantage of this Roman law, trying to uh, leverage it against Paul. ESV does a nice job here of showing Luke's intention. Uh Jesus promises in verse 10 that, that he will protect Paul from attack. And then ironically in verse 12, Luke says that the Jews made a united attack on Paul. They're two different Greek words, but they have the same meaning. And clearly that was uh, Luke's intention there. Is here Jesus promises no attack and then he's under attack. But Jesus is the promise keeper. And we see in verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal and they all seized Thosthenes and the ruler of the the synagogue and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Um, So this was the normal process for the the judicial process in a Roman uh, province, that the first step after hearing the case was to decide whether or not he would judge the case. And he, he says, no, I'm not going to judge this. This is a, this is an intramural Jew, Jewish squabble, which I think is interesting considering that Claudius had recently kicked the Jews from Rome for the disturbance over Christ. But it's important because in some ways it sets a precedent in the city of Corinth that Christians have the opportunity to flourish and grow a little bit there and not be oppressed by the Jews. Um, so it's a bit of a, a boon to the fledgling church in Corinth. And then kind of putting an exclamation point on the irony of this story, Luke includes the story of the beating of Sosthenes, who is uh, the ruler of the synagogue, uh, whether Crispus's successor or another synagogue, um, probably the former. But there's two commentators give two primary reasons why they beat Sosthenes. The first is that he was a Pauline sympathizer and the Jews beat him up, which I think is unlikely. Galileo would not have ignored, I think, that activity. Uh, Second is that the Gentiles took the opportunity to abuse the Jews. There was a lot of, apparently, anti-Semitism in Corinth, and apparently Galio himself was quite anti-Semitic. And so he, he ignores what they're doing to him, and I believe that's closer to the truth because it fits the story better. Uh, the ploy of the Jews is to attack Paul, and then it turns out the Sosthenes gets beat up. I was not initially sure about what was the purpose of this whole story of Galileo in this chapter. I didn't understand how it fit into the narrative, but I realized, and it's fairly obvious, this story illustrates the promise that Jesus made to Paul. I will be with you, and no one will be able to attack you. He didn't even have to open his mouth, and he was protected from attack. I recently, or a few months ago, made a promise to somebody that recently um, came into... uh I didn't want to keep it. It seemed painful to keep it. Nobody in this room. Um, <laughs> but I kept it because I wanted to build trust with this person. I wanted to see he's going to come through on his word. And I wish I always did that. But that's That's what promises do. When we fulfill our promises, it builds trust in the person who made the promise. I'm not reliable to always keep my promises. I fail, but the Lord Jesus is the promise keeper. He's not bound by sin or by constraint against his ability to keep his promises. He is the Lord, and he can keep and will keep his promises. Uh, and so we have here yet another beautiful example of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ in uh, divine concurrence here. In other words, we see the sovereignty of Christ executed through the ordinary wills and actions of men. That Gallio acted according to his judicial wisdom and he was renowned for his judicial wisdom. And yet King Jesus enacts his promise through the actions of Gallio. So as the proverb says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. So when we sanctify as Lord Jesus in our hearts, we're able to truly offer a reason for the hope that is in us. In fact, Jesus is the hope that is in us. Jesus himself is a powerful apologetic. And he's the reason we can be confident in his gospel, in his kingdom, in the midst of difficult and intimidating circumstances. Our hope rests in his sovereign provision, his sovereign protection, and his sovereign promise keeping. So he says to his humble servants, fear not, I am with you. Amen.